This is the Becker's Healthcare Podcast, created by the team of Becker's Healthcare, a multimedia company devoted to the people who power U.S. healthcare. Four new 15-minute episodes are released daily, containing industry news, analysis, and thought leadership from powerful healthcare decision makers. Support our show by leaving it a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts or other platforms you use. It's a chance to tell us what you like about the show and act on your feedback. Thanks for listening. Now here's the episode. This is Laura Deirdre with the Becker's Healthcare Podcast. I'm thrilled today to be joined by Bob Calway, the President and Chief Executive Officer of New England Life Care. Bob, it's a pleasure to have you on the podcast today. Thank you, Laura. Thanks for having me. Now, I know we have got a lot to talk about. There's so much happening right now in healthcare and certainly just some really fascinating um, things you're doing there at New England Life Care. But before we dive into my questions, can you tell us a little bit more about yourself and your background? Yeah, sure. Let me tell you both about me and a little bit about my company because we're a little bit different than the uh, than the typical healthcare organization. So um, as you mentioned, I serve as the president and CEO of New England Life Care. Uh, my background, I was originally trained as a medical laboratory technologist and worked in acute care laboratories for a number of years early in my career. Uh, but most of my background, I hold advanced degrees in healthcare administration and in public health. Uh, and most of my background has been in uh, large academic medical centers and physician group practices. And most recently, before joining New England Life Care, uh, I worked with Atrius Healthcare, which is a very large physician practice here in uh, eastern Massachusetts, um, and one of the first participates in the uh, Pioneer Accountable Care Organization, uh, which is uh, where I spent most of my time uh, working with and developing programs to perform favorably in an accountable care organization. And that's in part what drew me here to New England Life Care. And for New England Life Care, um, as I say, we're a unique organization. Uh, we're organized as a not-for-profit hospital services cooperative um, under Section 501E of the IRS tax code. Um, and what that means in practical terms is that uh, we provide a designated service. In this case, it's uh, home infusion services uh, to uh, not-for-profit hospitals that are members of the cooperative. And today there are 70 hospital members uh, in the cooperative located in Massachusetts, Maine, New Hampshire, and Vermont. Um, and uh, a, an interesting feature of the cooperative is that the member hospitals actually own New England Life Care. So we serve, if you will, as the infusion department uh, for the 70 hospitals that, uh, that we represent. And internally, I maintain 70 profit and loss statements for all of the hospitals that are a member of the cooperative. So a uh, very interesting structure, uh, but in providing a really important services to the not-for-profit hospitals located in the region that we serve. That's amazing to hear. And definitely, you know, a very big responsibility to be serving that community in such a, a large area of diverse population as well. From your perspective, what are some of your top priorities right now? What are you really spending most of your time on? Yeah, it's great question. Um, you know, we we conducted um, in the last few weeks um, our town hall meetings where we bring together all of our staff who are spread all over New England uh, to update them on what's going on with the business and what are our priorities at the moment. Um, and in that, we shared with folks that um, we had hoped coming out of the pandemic that things would settle down a little bit. Uh, but in fact, the opposite is true, that the market is changing so quickly, both after effects of the pandemic, but just changes in the marketplace, 
that it's really caused us to take a step back and reevaluate our strategic plans um, over the course of the next couple of years and in fact shorten our strategic horizon because the market is changing quickly enough and new threats are emerging fast enough that it's really shortened our, our, um, our visibility. Um, so the things that we're working directly on now are the things that, frankly, many of our member hospitals are dealing with today. So first and probably foremost is the shortage of qualified labor uh, to support the healthcare organization. As you know, lots and lots of people left healthcare during the pandemic. The pipeline of replacement staff isn't adequate to support the needs of the marketplace. Uh, and we've got a large uh, population of healthcare workers who are approaching retirement. So we're innovating strategies around how do we continue to grow the organization in an environment that where, where there would simply not be enough staff to facilitate that growth. And that's taken on a number of different strategies. So that's sort of number one. The second is really a focus on driving interoperability and starting to deploy newer technologies that have come out in the marketplace and particularly in the last six months or so, uh, and particularly starting to deploy artificial intelligence and robotic process automation into our workflows, frankly, as a strategy to support the fact that there aren't enough staff available to do the work and grow the organization. So part of our strategy around dealing with staff shortages is working to make sure that we provide the tools that allow our staff to be as efficient as they possibly can and allow taking kind of the mundane work out of the work that they do and allowing them to work at the higher end of their licenses or their capabilities. So that's been a big change as well. Um, but I would also reflect it as both a curse and a blessing because while the drive for interoperability is really critical, both to kind of support the organization and to develop a patient-centric approach in managing care. Um, the flip side to that is the rapidly increasing incidence of cyber attacks. Uh, we were a victim of a cyber attack earlier this year and thankfully were able to respond to it quickly, uh, but a lot of time and effort has to go into protecting our information systems and keeping ahead of what is a burgeoning crisis in terms of uh, the, the ability for uh, threat actors to be able to invade systems that we use to care for our patients. Um, and then lastly, a big focus for us, particularly as a not-for-profit, um, is operating profitably. So, you know, we've seen both in an inflationary economy, but also as a result of sort of ongoing supply chain disruptions, both in terms of supplies, but also in pharmaceuticals, relatively rapid increases in the prices for um, for the products that we purchase and that we use in patient care. Uh, and, and candidly, uh, third-party payer reimbursement is not keeping pace with that. So this we find this eroding our margins together with higher labor costs and needing to look at ways to make sure we can continue to generate sufficient margins to support the operations of the business and continue to grow. Absolutely. I think that's fascinating. And, and certainly a lot of the issues that you touched on um, are top of mind for healthcare executives across the board. It, certainly when you're looking at the labor shortages and challenges, um, love to hear, you know, working on some of the 
AI, RPA, and other digital transformation aspects that can boost the workforce. And then um, the supply chain disruptions too, it just seems like, you know, or continued a one-two punch of really um, is, try, yeah. trying to uh, hospital financials and trying to figure that out. Um, you know, when you look at all those things, obviously bringing technology in can make a big difference, but how do you incorporate that into the broader culture of the organization and making sure people, um, you know, are, are working to the top of their abilities, but then also comfortable with the um, digital transformation strategy? Yeah, well, I think it's a great question. Uh, I sort of express that in terms of um, our strategies or our tactics for dealing with um, staffing shortages. Um, and we've really got kind of five approaches, one of which speaks directly to the question you're asking. So number one is that we we recognize that we have to be much more innovative in recruiting for the limited staff that are available in the marketplace. And part of that requires us to make the organization an attractive one for healthcare professionals to want to join, right? So um, you'll hear threaded through these strategies the goal of what we refer to as creating allies with our employees, right? Embedding them and engaging them actively uh, in how the business is run, um, creating an environment where people feel connected to the purpose, where their voices matter and where they feel connected with uh, where the business is going and how we're going to get there. Um, that will, in fact, I think, ultimately also make it an attractive place for people to want to come to work. Um, that gets to the second piece, which is really focusing on staff retention, keeping the good staff that we have. Uh, and that gets back to what I was just talking about around keeping people connected, having them feel a sense of purpose and commitment and engagement with the organization, uh, that their voice matters and that, that there are folks listening to their points of view on how the business should run. But there's also a big focus on our part around preserving staff wellness and identifying reducing the signs of burnout, which were really endemic during the, the COVID period. Um, you know, third for us is improving the efficiency and the productivity of the staff we have. And that's where I mentioned starting to apply things like uh, artificial intelligence and robotic process automation and, and frankly, modern information systems. So we'll be going through uh, an upgrade of our electronic medical record in the next 18 months to provide a more modern platform that allows us to better, better digitize our, our systems. Um, and in AI and RPA, we've applied it in a couple of places already. So um, we were able to, uh, to use robotic process automation to basically digitize order entry coming into our organization, uh, which had an enormous benefit. So historically, our orders came to us generally by fax. Um, but were sometimes available through hospitals' use of post-acute uh, discharge software. Um, but all of that was ultimately converted to paper that our staff then end up having to re-enter into our electronic medical record. And you can just imagine both the, the labor requirements to do that and the degree of error that comes with anyone trying to transpose information from you know, a written document into an electronic record. So we actually use robotic process automation to receive those incoming faxes, digitize the results and load it automatically into our electronic medical record. So we eliminate all of that manual data entry. 
we're applying that in some in a number of areas also within our billing operations. And again, the goal here is trying to identify the mundane parts of the work that all of our staff do, whether professional staff or administrative staff, and remove that, use technology to support that. So to your question about staff acceptance of that, um, there you know, kind of two pieces to this. One is staff view it as incredibly valuable, right? We're looking for small wins here to show how the application of this technology can make their work lives better, right? Because no one wants to have to do all of that mundane work. Uh, staff want to be using kind of a higher level of judgment and capability in the work that they uh, that they do. So we're seeing acceptance there from that point of view. Um, and two, by actively engaging our staff in utilization of the software. So we were really clear as we went into this, we're not developing this, this software to replace anybody. This this is not going to eliminate jobs. Um, what it will do, though, is turn the trajectory that will require us to have less labor as we continue to grow, um, and it's labor working at, at a higher level of competency and capability. Um, so that's where our AI models come in. And then, you know, we're also looking at alternative staffing models, uh, you know, given that there aren't enough infusion nurses, for example, to be able to support the healthcare marketplace, starting to look at places where um, other kinds of staff can do the work that infusion nurses are, are not available to. So, for example, here in Massachusetts, we're now using um, LPNs to do IV line management. It's within their scope of practice. Um, and instead of having to deploy expensive uh, infusion nurses to do that. So, again, it's using the right folks at the right end of their scope of practice and their capabilities. Um, and then lastly, we're really starting to look at how we develop staff, right? Now, this will include training programs designed to create a, a pathway within the organization that allows staff to stay here, develop new skills, and move into increasing levels of, of, um, of capability within the organization. So we're looking at training, for example, our own pharmacy technicians so that they can work in the clean room, taking folks without having that experience and actually building the training programs here. So multifaceted in terms of how we're going to accomplish that um, and all rely on one another. But the essence to this in, in the answer again to your question is you can't be successful in doing this unless you're engaging staff at every level to know what you're trying to accomplish as an organization and them feeling a part and engagement in achieving those goals. Absolutely. That makes a ton of sense. And I, I really love it. Um, love that strategy there. Now, looking into the future, how do you see New England Life Care evolving over the next few years? What do you see as accelerating and changing over time? Yeah, that's a great question, too. Um, and, you know, my answer would have been different if you had asked me that during the uh, during the pandemic. But one of the things that we saw um, really prior to the pandemic and and sort of on steroids, if you will, during the pandemic was um, more migration of care out of acute care settings and into the home. And where that really got wheels, if you will, during the pandemic is, you know, one was CMS's um, expansion of the hospital without walls or the hospital at home programs and providing reimbursement for those programs that, um, you know, that created 
just a waterfall of organizations now that are implementing their own hospital at home programs, bringing care into the home. Uh, that was sort of one uh, one option, uh, one uh, feature uh, of the pandemic. Um, you know, organizations were realizing that a lot of the care that is provided in acute care settings can be provided in the home and we're simply lacking a reimbursement mechanism for that. Um, and we're also now seeing in large part to compete favorably in accountable care programs, uh, more and more programs aimed at trying to avoid patients going into acute care settings or being unnecessarily hospitalized services that could be provided in the home. And home infusion is a big part of that because it's not uncommon that patients go to the emergency room to get a line installed to start their antibiotic treatment, for example, and then get admitted for that when, in fact, those services could be provided equally well and equally safely in the home. So we expect that expansion is going to continue. Uh, you see it in in a number of the disruptors that are that are moving into the marketplace. You look at places like Amazon and Optum and uh, so forth that are really focused on both the pre-acute and the post-acute settings, recognizing that more care is going to be happening in the home. So for us, that means both a, a, a you know significant growth in the services that we provide. Uh, but it also means that uh, we've got to think about how we do di things differently, right? Because, for example, providing home infusion for a hospital home patient uh, is the same as we've done for many years for, a, you know, a patient that has been discharged from an acute care setting. The difference here is the turnaround time. These are hospitalized patients. So you've got to build your operation that allows you to prepare compounded medication and infusion supplies in a rel relatively quick turnaround. So that's a big change for our organization is trying to keep up with that uh, with that pace of change. Um, I think the other thing we expect to see is that, again, the, the um, pandemic taught us that many more therapies that we always assumed could only be provided in acute care settings um, can in fact now be done in home in the home. So you know you're seeing in the marketplace, for example, more movement of um, cancer treatment for patients in the home, including some types of chemotherapy now provided in the home. Um, that's supplemented by another um, uh, service that emerged during the pandemic, which is the application of telemedicine and patient telemonitoring. Uh, right, and that emerged very quickly out of necessity during the pandemic, but that's going to survive now. That will sort of be the platform that allows us to provide more services to the patient in the home environment. So big impact for us, as we're I mentioned at the outset, that the market is changing really quickly for us, and it's those areas where we're really starting to see the pace of change um, just moving very, very quickly. And many competitors, including not-for-profit competitors um, and big tech, moving into this area to try to capture a piece of the pie. Absolutely. That's such a great point. And, you know, so interesting to think about how that pace of change has really made a difference, um, you know, over the past couple of years. And certainly one of the things you mentioned at the top of our conversation, too, is there being new threats as as 
part of the reason why you're needing to um, shorten that strategic horizon and looking yeah. at, you know, um, what's happening there. And so I was wondering, you know, is that typically looking at some of these non-traditional healthcare entrants or, or what other threats do you really see as arising now that, you know, may not have been there or part of that strategic process before the pandemic? Yeah, it's a great question. And you're right that, you know, all of this environment uh, has really shortened our strategic horizon where we typically would have looked out two to three years in our strategic planning. You know, it's, right now it's impossible to look at the market and determine where it's going to be going and what the threats will be three years from now, uh, which has kind of shortened that up. Um, but the, you know, we we see as the principal threats, the, so I mentioned um, really a rapid invasion um, into the, particularly the post-acute in the home marketplace, um, again, by very large organizations. So, you know, you're seeing entrants around things like, you know, Amazon, Google, uh, Optum. Um, most recently, um, you may have seen that Costco has announced that they're entering the primary care market and they're going to be offering telemedicine and, and prime, uh, uh, primary care services through their uh, big box stores. Um, that's a momentum that's underway. And um, the, the, the reality is that part of this is recognizing the patient centricity to care, that these are organizations that are very much focused on what do patients want. And, you know, the marketplace is changing quickly, right? We're now seeing um, the majority of the population in the United States, at least, are Gen Xers, Gen Ys, and they have very different uh, needs and wants uh, in the healthcare marketplace. They want immediate access. They want immediate contact. They don't want to wait in line and they don't want to wait six months to get services. Um, and if you can't provide them as an organization, they're going to go somewhere else. Um, so a lot of folks entering the market to try to be able to build on that desire that you're seeing coming from the uh, population. Uh, so we're looking at that both in terms of how do we deploy, how do we deploy technology to, to try to mimic that and meet that demand in our in our members. But it's also going to require some association with these organizations to really start to build partnerships to figure out how to do that uh, collectively. Because, you know, if you're not doing it as part of a partnership, you're going to lose that part of your uh, your care, health care spectrum. Absolutely. I, I love that. And, you know, really sets a, a really strong kind of uh, vision in motion for how you're able to tackle some of these big challenges and leverage partnerships and connections creatively um, within the industry to, to really deliver care and make sure people have access to care, too. Um, I love that. Before we wrap up our conversation, I'm wondering if you could talk through what is something that you or your teams have done differently that has really made some great results. Yeah, um, well, I mentioned one already, um, which was um, our first effort in applying um, robotic process automation to improve the efficiency and the timeliness of order entry and processing. Uh, that was a huge success for us. So uh, we allocate, you know, roughly four to five FTEs a day within our organization, uh, simply uh, taking orders and entering them into our electronic medical record and an untold number of errors that come with just anybody entering information or transposing information. Uh, so the application of RPA there was an enormous success for us, right? It really took a huge demand 
demand off of the staff that manage that and dramatically reduce the, the number of errors that we see with the input of what is frankly critical data, right? No one wants to put a, a um, an order in incorrectly because that can result in direct patient harm. So that was a big success, both in terms of improving the efficiency and productivity of our staff. Uh, this was, by the way, a staff-driven initiative. So the suggestion came from one of our staff to look at this as a, as a model. So uh, it accomplished our goals around engaging our staff in, in moving this forward, but it also accomplished the goal of ensuring that we keep our patients safe and provide good, effective, safe care for them. So that was certainly one area. Uh, the other uh, option I would, or the other uh, project that we're working on that not yet complete, but I have very high hopes for, uh, is we're in the latter stages of a trial using artificial intelligence and natural language processing as the front end for patients calling into our organization. Uh, specifically one type of patient, which is on a therapy called TPN. It's a nutritional uh, therapy. Uh, and often this requires a lot of management with these patients uh, to make sure that they are not getting readmitted back to the hospital. So we're using a front-end AI um, uh, avatar, if you will, to receive incoming patient calls answer the standard questions that are roughly 80% of the of the um, calls that come in, and then triage those calls that can't be answered over to a registered nurse who before was answering all of these calls. Uh, so uh, we've had some really interesting and really good acceptance by patients in the trials uh, to using this model. And um, if it's successful here, we expect to deploy that in a number of different areas where our organization comes into contact with patients around the patient service interface. Uh, and that has promise for uh, enormous cost savings uh, and value because, you know, one of the values of AI here is it's learning, right? The more data I'm giving it, the more it's learning how to respond to even the unique questions that uh, patients have. So it's a really exciting time um, to be rolling things out like that. And we have very high hopes that this is going to be a big win for us. Absolutely. That sounds amazing. And, and those results really speak for themselves. Bob, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. This has been such a fun and interesting conversation, and I look forward to connecting with you again soon. It's my pleasure. Again, thank you for having me. It's so important for leaders at the top of organizations to keep learning, stay sharp, grow their networks. To help our audience better do this in a more simplified, personalized, and meaningful way, Becker's Healthcare has launched MyBHC. It's your trusted Becker's healthcare experience and more with content, connections, events, and learning opportunities. Join the community free of charge at www.my.beckershospitalreview.com and we'll see you there. Mm -hmm.